Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode of the Eco Chamber, we'll examine Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak's plan to rip up green tape, why freeports might be expanding over national parks, the spider crab invasion on the south coast, and then Jamie will brutally expose our ignorance by subjecting us to one of his surprise quizzes. Once we've recovered, we'll take a look at whether the UK is preparing to reprise its role as the dirty man of Europe. We're all very, very proud. And then Simon Pixton and Alice Fullen will be here to fill you in on the EU's controversial plans to relax green farming rules in response to food security concerns. As you can imagine, that has raised some eyebrows. So without further ado, let's enter the eco chamber. I'm Rachel Salvage and today I'm here with Jamie Carpenter and Tess Colley and we're going to look at the big green news of the last fortnight. For our first story, we're going to look at what the Tory leadership hopefuls, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, have been promising in terms of the environment. And on the face of it, it's not looking that great. We've spoken before in the Eco Chamber about how green groups are worried that Truss and Sunak are going to engage in a race to the bottom on environmental regulation, promising to rip it up potentially as red meat with which to feed the party faithful. But it looks like it's actually a lot more concrete than that. The race to the bottom now sounds like a bit of a quaint way of describing it, and it looks a little bit more like a cage fight. They are so desperate, both of them, to be seen as the ultimate king or queen of deregulation that their pledges are becoming ever more extreme and, and even shrill. So much so that Sunak released a shonky film on Twitter last week showing a faceless man shredding reams of document crudely entitled EU Red Tape. Uh, Sunak says he's going to deliver a, um, a Brexit delivery department and get rid of the remaining 2,400 rules in his first 100 days, which sounds like quite a task. Before that, Tress has already promised that she's going to create a bonfire of EU red tape in July. So there doesn't seem to be that much between them except the method of destruction. So are you shredder or are you fire? I think in pollution terms, we should probably go with a shredder. Anyway, Jamie, can you give us some detail about the implications of some of these pledges that have been made by the candidates? And it'd be quite good if we could start with Tress maybe first. Tress, yeah, well, um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the big questions is whether the the mysterious man, um, before we get to that, mysterious man on Rishi Sunak's video is actually Rishi Sunak or someone ah. else. There's a bit of speculation around that. And um, who knows? Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to examine it more closely. Will, yeah. I mean, with, with, with Liz Truss, I mean, I think the one of the interesting things that she's, she's said about the retained EU law, so she's she's saying that she would scrap all remaining EU regulations by the end of 2023. That, that would be... That would involve putting a, a sunset clause on on those laws within fifteen months, and that's that's actually faster than you remember. Jacob Rees Mogg was talking about doing the same thing, and that would have been further out at June twenty twenty six. But when he when when that kind of came about, there was a big there was a big row within the cabinet over the feasibility. Given given that um, they're talking about ninety thousand heads going in 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 this shake up, yeah. um, George Eustace also kind of pushed back against it apparently by by warning that it would reduce his officials' focus on the important stuff that he wants to rip up, like the habitats regulations. <laughs> yeah, me first. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, so exactly. Got his priority list. So, mm. Yeah. So, so I mean, that, that, that's what she's been saying about um, EU red tape or green tape. I think the, 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 other, the other kind of interesting things that she's been saying, um, I'm sure it comes to similar stuff around Sunak's comments too, but she's, she's quite anti-solar farms. So mm. she's describing them as paraphernalia and yes. um, has said that she would change planning rules to restrict them. So um, our, our field should be filled of our, filled of our fantastic produce, he said, presumably so she can 
go to some pork markets. And- <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yes, um, she needs room for the pigs. Right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, and and the, the other, she's made some kind of comments around house building and planning as well. So she wants to abolish top-down Whitehall-inspired Stalinist housing targets. Mm. Sounds um, sounds exciting. She, so she's amend the leveling up bill to replace what she's describing as these centralised targets with tax cuts and reduced red tape in order to make it easier to build on brownfield land. So it's not really, I mean, what she's saying there sounds very similar to what um, Eric Pickles was saying more than a decade ago. And I'm not quite sure really what um, she's referring to when she's talking about top-down housing targets. It's a lot of sound bites, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. A depressing sort of scarcity of um, creative thinking. <laughs> so is that, um, is that mean she's moving away from that 300,000 homes a year target? I know Sunak is, isn't he? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, 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 I kind of wonder whether she might be referring to this um, standard methodology for calculating housing needs. So that's something right. that's set centrally and has been, has been um, very controversial, mm. particularly with, with conservative shires. But I don't think that's really going to address... The, the housing crisis in any in any way the, the, the kind of, it doesn't you, you you kind of set a, a national target but it doesn't mean that the housing need is going to go away anyway so no. so we still need to build the homes yeah so what has sunak been saying if he's not too busy purchasing shredders in pc world well he, he's he's been making some similar comments to to liz truss on um on solar and onshore wind so he he he's he's been saying that he would restrict solar developments on farmland and would scale back onshore wind schemes um, on on planning his promising, a bit like Tony Blair with education, 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 he's promising brownfield, brownfield, brownfield. Mm. Um, so he's, and he's also, I think one of the interesting things is that he's pledging to ban building new homes on Greenbelt land. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so at the moment, it's very difficult to get permission for new homes on, on Greenbelt if you're doing it via a planning application, but local authorities can through the local plan process, they can release, they can release land from their from from the green belt, sort of through that through that mechanism. But but Sunak suggesting that there should be a blanket ban on on councils releasing green belt land for for housing development through that process, which is in 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 my view is pretty daft, really. Mm. I guess all this is up for grabs in the review of the national policy national planning policy framework. Is that right? When is that due? Or is that ongoing? That's neat. Later this year, that we're meant to be getting a kind of consultation. Yeah, was was it promised like in sort of a few months ago? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's one yeah. of the many delayed things, and who knows how long it's been delayed now, but yeah, coming due shortly. <laughs> in due course. They've both made comments on what should be happening with the water sector at the moment because it's obviously under intense scrutiny now across all media um, for its performance on you know pollution and mm. resilience for the future and all of that. Mm, yes, definitely. I mean, they, they, I would say they've been criticised a bit by some environmentalists for not addressing the drought as a, as a big issue at the moment mm. uh, in enough detail. But something that they, they have both commented on, on the water industry kind of a bit more, more vaguely, I suppose you could say, saying that, uh, well, Liz Truss, you know, has vowed to hold the industry to account, um, you know, saying that we shouldn't be in a position where hose pipe bans have to happen and water companies need to fix leaks and waste across their networks. Mm. Um, so you know, I'm sure that that will controversial statement. Yeah, <laughs> Whether there's yeah, anything yeah. behind it. Let's yeah. see. Um, and you know, Sunak sort of said similar sort of thing. Like we need tough up financial pen- penalties mm. on the companies who aren't investing enough uh, to stop water being wasted, uh, which is which is all well and good. Uh, but uh, that, I mean, that's that's kind of the, the 
most of what we've heard. Mm. I have also heard, I think it was Trust saying, um, we need more competition between the water companies and I that's what's going to fix. That. That's what will yeah. fix it. Yeah. Um, this will fix it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, more competition. That's what we need for these, you know, geographical monopolies. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Well, like, in one sense, it makes sense, but it, it's the actual the core of the problem. Right. Many people think. Mm. <laughs> um, so not a lot to worry about then. We will move on to our next uh, story, which is kind of sticking with the theme. It's on deregulation again, and this one's about free ports. So these are the areas that which are usually at shipping ports and airports and um, where certain taxes don't apply. They don't need to be paid. And the idea is that that will stimulate economic growth in those areas. Um, in the 2021 Spring budget, Sunak announced that there are going to be eight new free ports and there's going to be in places such as Hull and Essex and around the country. But it's also expected that the planning regulations in these zones are going to be relaxed, something that's always a bit of a red flag for green groups. But so you can imagine their concern when they, they notice treasury maps showing that some of the boundaries of the free ports are encompassing national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty or AONBs in places like Dartmoor, North York Moors and the New Forest. So that is red flags and alarm bells and all all the rest of those things. Tess, what, in what way would planning rules be relaxed in these areas? And, and how does that fit with DEFRA's previous statements that, you know, national parks need to need a stronger duty to do mm. the role in conserving the environment? Yeah. So well, when, when the Treasury consulted uh, on, on its plans around free ports and, uh, and then responded to the consultation, and this was in 2020, um, they said that the government would, would explore expanding permitted development rights to bring seaports in line with airports. Uh, and permitted development rights are basically those which allow certain building works and changes uh, to be carried out without the need for full planning application. So, you know, basically it's just a, a, a big relaxation uh, of the rules. And they also said they'd use the free ports bidding process to encourage the use of local development orders where appropriate. And these are also where the mechanisms by which I think local councils can provide permitted development rights for certain types of development. So it's all it's all about um, easing up restrictions. Um, and that's that's all we know so far. Uh, and the government has said when I, when I took this, this question to them, um, saying, what's this going to mean for the national parks, which are... Um, in these 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 boundaries, uh, well, firstly, I went. I asked Defra, I asked the Treasury. Both deferred ultimately to the to Deluxe, the, the Department for Leveling Up and um, Housing. And this was after being thrown back and forth between all three for a while in the morning. Such fun, such fun. But also suggested that no one, either no one wanted to answer, or I wondered, and other people I've spoken to have speculated that uh, had. Was what was Defra aware of the situation? <laughs> uh, was it known that the, the national parks were in some of these free, uh, outer boundaries? Uh, because it does completely uh, seem at odds with Defra's plans announced this year to uh, make national parks much more better at uh, recovering nature, to make it a statutory purpose that they strengthen the nature, kind of the nature network. Mm -hmm. um, how you can do that by also relaxing planning regulations they just seem completely completely at odds um but ultimately what the government said to me was well um they've introduced some of these permitted development rights um kind of relaxation areas already uh, in some areas but 
it's only, they say, uh, for operational purposes. So it's for harbour buildings and that sort of thing. So they Rather wouldn't be on the boundaries of the national parks? No, no okay. that's that's the implication. Right. Um, and, you know, they say there's, yeah, there's local councils are still in charge of what is approved and what isn't. And they have to consider whether or not um, they they will give approval. So it's not completely out out free for anyone to do what they want. However, uh, I think if people, a lot of a lot of conservationists are still worried because if you've got no intention of of uh, relaxing planning laws in national parks, why have them in the in? The, why not just take them out yeah. of these maps? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's a funny one, and as we've just been talking about, there's plans to review the the national planning policy framework. As another um, policy framework come out for ports also being reviewed. Mm. And of course, the levelling up paper is going through Parliament and could have amendments brought in. So although this is the current situation, um, I think there's a bit of concern that the national parks have been opened up to mm. a problem. We all know that when you, when uh, in any calculation, when the environment is balanced with the economic need, the environment always loses out. Mm. Uh, Jamie, what do you think the specific risks to the environment might be as a result? Do you think what, what could be a sort of worst case scenario? Well, I think I think it's really hard to tell, and I think I think it does depend on how the streamlined planning rules come about. So I think there's there's a question mark as to if, as, as Tess said, that the the government's already made some changes to permitted development rights um, to, I suppose, make it make it easier for for ports to to expand. And, and the way permitted development rights work is that that they they're not, as far as I understand, they're not geographically specific. They're like a national rule, so they, they'll. Like the most famous ones, I suppose, are um, rules that allow offices to convert to housing without without planning permission. So you're looking specifically at uses rather than areas. So it, I, I, I'd be quite surprised if the government's actually looking at that as a way beyond what they've already done to to free up planning rules in those areas. So the, the local development orders are they are they are kind of geographical. They do apply to local sort of specific sites, and they're brought forward by local local authorities, um, but. I think there's a big question mark over what the appetite will be for those. The um, there, there was a program of um, enterprise zones about I think it was about ten years or so ago. It was one of the first things that Cameron's government did related to planning, and and the they they use local development orders as the, the the kind of mechanism by which they would streamline planning. And actually, they didn't really take off. So quite they 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 didn't they didn't get used in, in quite a lot of circumstances. The Councils kind of introduce them and then then kind of sort of axe them after a while and um, and it might be the case that the similar sort of thing happens here and I think the, and I think the other, the other thing is that um, it's interesting that the, the comment that, that says says that the um, I can't bring myself to say it the leveling up department um, <laughs> <laughs> made sort of saying well, well councils are in control of this sort of planning permissions and that, that's 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 interesting because councils will have to bring forward the LDOs. Um, but they might not have the expertise to do that. They might not have the capacity, and also they might they might actually feel they don't want to do it because it actually represents a loss of planning control for them. So they they, right, yeah. they so it might it might be that the government finds itself quite it, it might find a, a kind of a, a degree of opposition from local authorities to mm. this plan. So I think it, it does it does seem on the face of it quite worrying. But I I, I kind of wonder whether actually 
if they're just using these mechanisms that already exist, there's probably not a huge amount to worry about. Hmm. And it sounds a little bit more, I mean, it does sound suspiciously like it's still been done a bit ham-fistedly rather than, you know, conspiracy to take over the parts. But anyway, we will watch this one with interest and, and see what happens. So let's move on to our next story, which has exciting B-movie undertones. This is all about the invasion of the killer spider crabs. But actually, you know, if we get rid of the hyperbole, the only killers if you're a starfish or a marine worm. So it's not really that much to worry about. However, what's happened is that thousands of common spider crabs have shuffled their way into the shallows of Cornwall down in St. Ives to the dismay of lots of holidaymakers. Apparently there was lots of squealing, according to some reports. Anyway, the crabs apparently shed their shells and before making their way back into deeper waters. And these mass gatherings, um, I mean, the crabs themselves are common to the water, so that's not unusual, but um, these mass gatherings are becoming more common. Um, Tess, why is this happening? Well, the, the verdict seems to be that warmer warmer water temperatures, you know, warming climate is, is bringing them up more often. Um, that that's you know what what we've heard. Um, but yes, as you say, they they are not venomous. And a little factoid for you: um, <laughs> of the seventy thousand crustacean species known to known to us, mm-hmm. none are venomous, bar one, uh, the remipede, not found in Cornwall. So we can remipede. All relax. Where where is that? Uh, I think they're they're found generally in. Oh, I have to remember off the top of my head now. They're found in um, kind of it is is in kind of kind of coastal waters, but normally in much more equatorial. Okay. Uh, so you're looking at the Caribbean and that that sort of that sort of uh, kind of climate. Good crustacean fact. Thank you very much. <laughs> you are welcome. <laughs> it's one of a few things that appears to have been happening. It's not the only unusual wildlife event to take place in Cornwall this summer. Jamie, can you fill us in on any others? Yes. Well. Um... I think the, the the Cornwall Wildlife Trust has had a has a busy has had a busy few weeks <laughs> yeah. really. So, so they've yeah. been trying to quell people's fear that there there are a load of venomous spider crabs around. Um, I think it seems it seems from what I read that the um, the, the, the the newspapers got mixed mixed up between crab spiders and spider crabs, and crab spiders are venomous. Oh, so, oh. Um, I spider see why crabs. <laughs> spider crabs incidentally are are awesome. We had, I went on. Um, my, my summer holiday just now to West Wales, and there's a an aquarium called Ocean Lab in the, in the Fish Guard. It's run by Sea Trust Wales, and they have like this um, catch and release aquarium where they they they, they have a load of local wildlife there mm. that they then put back, apart from two terrapins that were donated by a local school and they can't release because they're invasive. But they have this like they have this monster spider crab there in the tank, oh, and it's beautiful. It's, it's really really yeah. like the kids loved it. But I would not want to get in the water with that. <laughs> no, that's not native to the UK waters. The, the huge one is it or is it? Is it? I think it was. It is was. It? Take, yeah, it was a big. It was a big spider crab. Yeah, really Giant big. Um, mm. But um, I'm digressing. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> it's um, a good one. So um, yes, yeah, so the the, the um, a few weeks ago, there was a um, some some sort of shark attacking Cornwall headlines because a snorkeler was um, bitten on the leg um, sort of off the coast of Penzance by a blue shark. Um, so the the um, the wildlife trust has been trying to kind of say that well, this this is not something that would happen to an ordinary person who's surfing, swimming, or diving right. around the coast. Um, blue sharks they they kind of have to be attracted to people using bait, and that's kind of what's happened in this instance. Yeah. Mm. At risk of sounding like the mayor from Jaws, I think we need to point out they were 15 miles off off the coast <laughs> on a blue shark trip looking for blue sharks. You know, yeah. so yeah, it's not as though someone was savaged to death on the just off the beach with you know in the mm. uh, 
in their waders in there. Not their waders. It's not like someone was. We don't sad. know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Waders or not waders, just wading. That's wading. what I was trying to say. It wasn't someone with a bucket and spade. No. They were actually looking for the blue sharks. So yeah. Um, okay. So speaking, that was obviously a gross error of judgment on the sharks' part. I mean, it doesn't happen very often, but you know, is a nice segue to gross errors of judgment. Jamie, it's our time to do our quiz. <laughs> have you brought something uh, for us to mull over today? Yeah, I have. Yeah, and it's it's kind of following on from this. So oh, um, oh, God. so basically. Basically, it's um, a quiz. Um, don't know what to call it. Maybe, maybe venomous or not venomous. I've got five five um, critters here, I and like you, you can okay, you can, right, yeah. Um, tell me whether whether you think they're they're venomous or not. Mm. And if in doubt, just imagine they are venomous. <laughs> yes. Okay, so we, we're going to start off with the. Uh, the golden dart frog, which is found in the rainforest of Western Colombia. Venomous. Yes, venomous. It is venomous. It, it, it um, Sorry. secretes okay. enough poison from its skin to kill yeah. 10 fully grown adults. <gasps> yeah, I've, I saw that documentary about that. They were looking for it because I think it's quite hard to find as well. And they all had these big gloves on and they, they did find it. And mm-hmm. then, um, oh, what was it? And they put, they put it down and then the, the woman who'd been holding it just went to brush her hair <gasps> off her face. And it was like, no! <laughs> almost <laughs> wrestling to, to the ground. So... Very close brush with God. death. Yeah. Um, great. What's next on? Okay. The wolf spider. So this can be found in a wide range of habitats, including the garden, and hunts down its prey, leaping on it just like a wolf. Not, it not venomous. venomous. No. Sounds scary, but maybe yeah. Yeah, it's not venomous, no. No bark and no bite. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably a bit, a bit, um, a bit easy this, so far. Um, what about the sea wasp? Hmm. I've never heard of that sea one. Sea wasp? No. I'm not go venomous? It is venomous. Oh. It's covered with stinging cells that explode on contact and deliver venom to its face oh, skin. Venomous. <laughs> it says most humans that come in contact with this venom experience overwhelming pain and often die from shock before reaching the shore. So wow, that, where pretty, are they? Um, I really like being on the, the coast of Cornwall. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, I think I think they're um, they're they're kind of Australia kind of. Okay. So I don't think they can take oh, a while not, to get over. It's not Cornwall. Take a while to get over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Maybe maybe global warming will uh, change all that. Yeah. Um, okay, two more. Um, the clownfish does does Nemo pack a poisonous punch? No. Oh. No, no. Doesn't, no, no. I thought that was a trick question. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not okay, and last one is the. Marble cone snail. Yes, because I don't think you'd have picked it out otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, this this is a good one. This this snail fires a harpoon-shaped tooth into its prey's skin, at which point the snail then retracts its tooth and eats its paralysed victim. Whoa! It's kind of fairly unpleasant. So where would you find these these devious snails? They're, they're kind of in, in the Pacific, so southern tip of India to Japan. So Phew. Uh, long okay. way away. <laughs> one less thing to worry about. Great. So that brings us to the end of our Big Green News section. Next up is our deep dive section in which we examine whether Brexit and the much promised torching or shredding of EU laws will see the UK reprise its role as the dirty man of Europe. It's generally accepted that EU laws, in many cases driven by the UK, have been the core reason for a raft of environmental improvements. 
So the bathing water, for example, the bathing water directive, that's regularly uh, cited as an example of a really good piece of legislation that's had a, a material effect in cleaning up the UK's beaches. It's got concrete targets and deadlines and forces governments to publicly report on the state of bathing waters. And while we know that significant flaws remain, like we don't really monitor the water very well and we only do, for, do it for a couple of kinds of bacteria, it's, it's generally a green law that has pushed us in the right direction. So in knowing that there are two and a half thousand roughly green laws remaining on the chopping block and that Truss and uh, Sunak want to get rid of them or review them and Rismog also has plans for that too. Um, what's it all going to mean uh, if we if we repeal of these things? And a lot of these things are in flux and changing anyway. So Jamie, what's at risk and what are we going to do about it? Yeah. <laughs> such, a, such a small question with an enormous question. answer. A, yeah, I mean, I think I think to to as a starting point, I, yeah. suppose, I suppose it's worth saying that clearly now now we're outside the EU. There's 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 the potential for environmental policy and 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 law to diverge, and and that can happen both between the EU and the UK, and and separate to that, we can also see divergence sort of within the UK. So because um, Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales have devolved powers now we're outside the eu um the, 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 there's this scope for divergence within the uk as well um and we, and we are we are kind of starting to see that um there are some some fairly notable examples um and the the other, the other thing without wanting to get too um technical about it is that that divergence can kind of take lots of different forms as well so um there's 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 a useful report that um, the IEP published a few months ago, um, which kind of set these out, and I won't go through all of them. But but one of them, one type is is called um, or what they refer to as divergence by default, which is basically where it's not kind of an intentional thing, but the UK is not not keeping up with the pace of lawmaking, policy making in the EU. So would uh, that be like with the chemicals regulations? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So and and that that means that the the kind of gap between the or some might say the chasm between two sides enlarges uh, in in over time. Um, and then, then separate to that, we might also see um, divergence by design. So that's where, where the UK sort of, or, or um, Westminster government, Scotland's approach is more to kind of keep pace or mirror what the EU is doing. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of seek to build a different approach just because it feels it needs to because we we freed ourselves from the shackles of Brussels. Mm. So that's maybe that's more more of an example. I mean, we can talk about some of these in a bit more detail. But things like the um, changes to BIA or the habitats regulations, they're, they're things that where the government clearly feels like it wants to go go its own way. Um, and I think it's also probably worth pointing out as well that although we're talking about dirty man in Europe, um, and, and I think we're right to be concerned about that, divergence is not a bad thing per se. So there might be some examples. I suppose a good example of this might be the elms where where if done right that's, land management yeah, yeah exactly yeah. it might it might be seen as a um a step up from the eu's common agricultural policy yeah. yeah um so um so yeah that's kind of bit of um nerdy nerdy background to to it all could be a step up if we we know how it's going to work yes <laughs> when it's going to take place and all of that and then you know another bit of background is i guess this brexit freedoms bill which is in the offing which will fast track the ability to change some of these rules and um, sort of increase the scope of the ministers to to change them so the brexit freedom bill is due when they've been talking about it for a while i think yeah, we're not we're not quite sure when it's due. It was it was placed in January, but it hasn't it hasn't appeared yet. Presumably now, it won't see light of day until um, Rishi or or Liz 
take number 10 and, yeah. and get their shredders out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, or lighter fuel. Yeah. Um, okay. So of all the, the, the sort of more high profile pieces of legislation that are going to be changed, and we know that they will be changed in some form because the government's been talking about it so long. So we're looking at, um, well, we know that reach is changing because it has to change. There's um, all the planning stuff under EIA, um, precautionary principle and stuff like that. Wh- which ones do you think are going to sort of feel the axe first, that we're actually going to feel some of these changes sooner rather than later? Well, well like, I, I guess the um, the planning-related changes are ones where the government's clearly set its stall out. So, so mm. we've, we've got... Um, there are kind of there. There are two strands to that. So the, the first is the stuff that was in the nature recovery green paper. So um, so part of that was the government sort of setting out its plans for new designations that could replace existing EU ones yeah. like um, SACs and SPAs. Um, and also it, it, it's proposing changes to the ways that assessments under the habitats regulation work. Um, so that's kind of quite a big area where the government consulted on that. I think that closed in in May, so we kind of wait and see what the next steps are. Mm. Separately, we have the um, levelling up and regeneration bill, which has been introduced, and I think that was at committee stage before summer recess, um, and that, that sets out the government's plan to replace um, the the processes of environmental impact assessment and strategic environmental assessment with the new system of environmental outcomes reports. And with that, it's not it's not entirely clear whether that, that new process proposed is is something that's a rebadging of what already is in place or whether it's more mm. fundamental, but there clearly is scope for significant divergence there. Um, and I think the, the changes to EIA are quite interesting as well because they do they do illustrate the issue of divergence within the UK because the Scottish government has come out quite strongly against those plans. They, 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 the, the, the minister there said it would give the UK government power to override Scotland's environmental protections and risk major divergence. So you can see that the the I suppose the UK government's plans in these sorts of areas are going to probably get quite quite a bit of pushback from the devolved nations. Mm. And I guess, uh, and as you've mentioned before, an example of the uh, diversions by default, or, or maybe it's just sloppy diversions, is uh, is from not within the UK but with the UK against Europe is the Reach regime, mm. whereby the uh, EU is quite far ahead now in. You know, adding new substances to you know watch lists and um, banned lists and restrictive lists and, and things like that, where the UK seems to be still trying to get its act together and replicate this this system that's going to cost the chemicals industry a fortune. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I think there's 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 quite a lot going on with that. So, um, so I guess, I guess with with UK reach, in effect, we we've we've created a. A low budget version of the, <laughs> the EU's own reach program. Um, Pound shop reach. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think chemicals firms, manufacturers, they, they say the cost of complying with it is eye-wateringly expensive. So I think the latest figure I've seen is two billion pounds. It mm. was it was one billion pounds, but now it's doubled. Um, the the government has been forced to consult on extending submissions deadlines under that under the new um, scheme. Um, so that that's kind of meaning delays to measures that might cut exposure to toxic substances. Um, as, you, as you mentioned, campaigners are concerned about this idea that we've fallen behind. Um, so ChemTrust say that since the UK left the EU, we've initiated only two restrictions of, of chemicals compared to five that have been adopted by the European Commission and the further 20 that are currently in the pipeline. Mm. So, and, and, and the EU is now 
looking to actually accelerate its restrictions process. So that that kind of I don't know what's worse than the chasm, but the chasm already exists. <laughs> I don't know. Where's Canyon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trench. Yeah. Like the marina trench. Or um, so, okay. But there are some instances, as you say, where we might do better, you know, if, if what, if the government is to be taken at its word. Um, and then there have been movements such as the, you know, the development or the, well, the enactment of the Environment Bill uh, 2021 that has a number of targets in it. And, but I think people just generally are not very impressed with those targets or with the things that are in the um, Environment Act because they just they just don't act as a solid replacement for what was there under, for example, the Water Framework Directive or something like that, uh, or you know, or equivalent um, directives. Is there an argument to say that there are, that some of this work will go faster and further than the, the EU stuff, or is it just you know, as we've heard from a lot of green groups, um, some of whom are really disappointed with it. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it depends who you want to believe, really. I think, I mean, when, when we're talking about things like the changes to habitats regulations and EIA, I think the governments are, or the ministers would say, well, actually, this means that we can go go further than, than the EU was able to, whether I, I imagine that people are kind of justified in, in sort of being quite sceptical about whether that's the case or not. I mean, I think, I think going going further and faster, I think one one thing that's kind of interesting is the kind of governance arrangements that are now in place that are being developed. So you have um, the Office of Environmental Protection that's operating in England and Northern Ireland and Environmental Standards in, Environmental Standards Scotland in Scotland. Um, not not so much happening in Wales at the moment, but I think the although those watchdogs don't have the power to to fine in the way that the Commission did, they they are I think there there is some encouraging stuff there. They are actually able to be a bit fleeter of foot than than um, the commission was that they're delving into areas of policy that the, that the commission probably never would have looked at. So if you're kind of trying to find a, a kind of a chink of light somewhere, that might be the, the place to look. <laughs> we'll we'll cling onto that piece of information and uh, hope that that's something that can we can do better for the for the country. Whether we'll be the dirty man of Europe, it's hard to say. But I'd be surprised if we don't find ourselves just a little bit grubbier or less sanitary than we were before, particularly if we carry on on the current path. Now it's time for Knowing Me, Knowing You. Simon Pixton and Alice Fillon are here to bring you the latest on green policy from Brussels. And in this episode, they're going to talk about EU plans to relax green farming rules as part of a move to increase food security. Not everyone's happy about it, as you can imagine. Over to you, Alice and Simon. Thanks, Rachel. We've heard a lot about the EU and the UK's responses to the gas crisis, but the war in Ukraine has also sparked a major food security crisis. And last month, the EU Commission adopted an instrument to boost food production in the EU as a result. What is it and what does it do, Simon? I'm glad you asked, Alice. The the European Commission proposed uh, an exception to the normal green farming rules, which farmers basically have to meet if they want to get the full amount of EU agricultural subsidy for next year. Um, And they did this in order to basically boost crop production within the EU. The, the 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 regulation. So that's EU implementing regulation 2022-1317. That would be that would be that would be the one, Alice. Yes, uh, basically lifts two of the requirements that farmers need to meet. One of them, which is about crop rotation. So next year, farmers won't have to rotate their crops on their fields. Mm-hmm. There's a second one, 
um, which is a little more technical, but basically requires normally un, under normal circumstances requires a field a farmer to leave four percent of their field as fallow at any at any one time. And the idea with this is basically this is a biodiversity. So when we when we say fallow, that four percent also includes non-productive areas and features. So that's things like hedges, let's say. Yes. So it gets a little bit complicated here, but basically the new rules. Uh, don't apply to those kind of they're called landscape features. Don't apply to things like hedges or tree lines or watercourses. So farmers still have to not farm around those those. So features. it's not a license to go chopping no, down their hedges. You can't go and, and chop down all your hedgerows, but it means that you don't have to leave just normal bits of field um, em- empty um, uh, over the course of the year. And the idea there is that the European Commission reckons that you can get another 1.5 million hectares of um farmland basically yeah, next what, year what would that represent roughly? Mm. <laughs> well i was trying to find a i was trying to find a good country size that would represent 1.5 million hectares it's like like substantially smaller than the netherlands it's like somewhere between luxembourg and the netherlands in terms of in terms of square Area. kilometers yeah. so considering ukraine uh, produces food that could feed 400 million people is that not just a drop in the bucket um y- yes I, it's it's got it's it's a relatively small amount of farmland in comparison to the the size and productivity of Ukraine. Um, I think the commission was under a lot of pressure from the member states to to lift some of the green farming requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, the commission has said, and I suppose there's some justification for it, every extra ton of food that the EU produces is potentially helping to avert global hunger. Um, the EU, we yeah. have to remember, is a big food exporter. So the EU is not dependent on wheat imports. Um, it's a big exporter of, but of grain. But it could alleviate. And it could help potentially. I mean, this is what the European Commission is saying. It could help potentially um, send some of that grain to places that are heavily dependent on Ukrainian grain normally. So, so that's the kind of rationale behind it. Uh, the Agriculture Commissioner, Wojciechowski, was really, really pushing for this. Um, the member states were really pushing for it. Now it's happened. Green groups are, it's fair to say, unhappy about this. And the reason is because fallow land is a really, really important space for biodiversity. So it's really important if you're a farmland bird, if you're migrate, if you're a migrating bird, if you're any kind of any kind of uh, rodent or you know, yeah, all sorts mammals, of all sorts um, of small mammals and things that really are dependent on yeah, these I mean, the, liminal spaces on farmland in order to get sustenance. Yeah, and the rules were put in place for a reason. They were put to, there to preserve soil quality yeah, and exactly, exactly. biodiversity. I mean the interesting thing about it as well is um it's a really dark bit of EU policy making. It's almost impossible to tell what's going on behind closed doors and these kinds of they're called implementing regulations. They don't have to go through the European Parliament. They go through they go through a really opaque process called comitology, which is spelled with one M, weirdly. I think from the French. From the French. We were discussing, mm. weren't we? Um, comitology happens as basically member state representatives, often um, represented by lobby groups. Yeah, so the idea is that they're supposed to be committees of experts. Exactly. These experts can often just be lobbyists. Um, meet behind closed doors and basically vote on um, particular technical pieces of legislation. We never find out the outcome of those votes. All that you get is a voting sheet with a with a breakdown of the vote by the number of member states that voted for, against and abstained and the percent of the EU population that they represent. 
So you never find out what the individual member states did. We do know, however, since I've unearthed the voting sheet for the current implementing act, that one member state abstained, 26 votes in favour. The member state that abstained represents 18.57% of the EU population, which is Germany. So Germany abstained and it was the only one to... um, apparently voice any kind of uh, misgivings about adopting the regulation. Okay, so we can basically see or we can intuit that the mechanism to suspend those rules is going to be taken up by the vast majority of EU member states. I would I would say that seems highly likely, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Because there is, uh, there is one thing to be said about the mechanism here. It's not that it's just completely suspends the rules. It allows each member state to essentially notify their intention to do so within the next 30 days. And then if the member state has done so, then farmers in their particular state get to avail themselves of the yeah. derogation. Yeah, without, so without losing any of this agricultural money. Yeah. yeah. What do you think the long-term impact of this might have? It, it, it's a good question. Yeah, I'm, I mean, you're absolutely right, because this is just for one year, a one-year exemption from the standard rules and the, we have to remember these rules were only agreed last year as part of the new um, EU funding program for agriculture new subsidy program for agriculture um, whether they get then extended again next year is another question I mean I think a lot of it depends on how the war in Ukraine has developed whether actually the Black Sea has reopened again for exports whether Ukrainian farmers are, at, are able to plant as much grain as they'd like next year um, what the situation is with Russian um, with Russian exports as well, we we just don't know. Um, I I think a lot of conservationists are very worried because farmland birds are being absolutely hammered anyway. If you look at populations across the EU, their, their numbers are just dropping That's like right. stones. So I, I think there's a lot of concern that quite a lot of damage will happen um, this year and next year as a result of these um, uh, environmental conditions being lifted. I think... It's maybe too early to tell at this point, but the signs aren't looking great. So watch this space, essentially. Mm. Back to you, Rachel. That brings us to the end of this episode of The Eco Chamber. Thank you to Jamie Carpenter, Tess Colley, Simon Pickstone and Alice Fillon. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please go to endsreport.com where there is tons of stuff to look through. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we will see you next time.